Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Good morning, South Valley. Good to see you all. Uh, My name is Adam. I am uh, a guest today. If you are new, if today is your first day, I just want to say we're in the same boat. This is so great. So welcome to you. Thank you all for welcoming me. This has been fantastic to be here this morning. I, uh, I want to just actually, before I even get into a little bit about myself, one of the things I want to say is uh, you just heard on that announcement ways in which you all have given and have been generous. And I just want to let you know that you may not know this, but you are helping us. I'm part of Cross and Crown Church that's up in Seattle, but we also started a church in the Nashville area outside of Tennessee. And you all are helping us plant that church by providing financial support every month. You're providing encouragement. Pastor Ricky's checking in. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for your support, for your encouragement. Yes, you can clap for that. It is a privilege and honor to do ministry together with other brothers and sisters, with other churches, and to be able to serve those outside of ourselves. So thank you all for your generosity. Okay, my name is Adam. Um, I am a pastor up in the Seattle area. I brought this weather with me, so you're welcome. Uh, But I'm not taking it back with me. You all can keep it. I, uh, a little bit about myself. So I've been uh, married for 17 years to my awesome, awesome wife, Heather. Uh, She's from the Seattle area. And so I met her and I stayed. I was like, I I can't leave this place. Uh, We have three kids. Uh, We've got two girls that are 11 and 12 who are doing everything they can to try and be 18 tomorrow. Uh, But they're a ton of fun. And then we have a 14-year-old son as well. So I'm in the midst of junior high. It's a lot of fun. I absolutely love it. Um, It's just uh, a privilege. Uh, Started a church with uh, a gentleman who came here in November, Mr. Matthias Heusel. If you uh, remember him, he came in November and talked about church planting. Uh, And so naturally, he and I have been planting churches together, which is just a ton of fun. So he and I work together um, up in the Seattle area. He's back and forth. He's in Tennessee and he's up in Seattle. And uh, I'm in Seattle. And two years ago, my wife and I helped plant a church just north of Seattle. Another Cross and Crown church is in the Edmonds area. Uh, I tell you what, it is sweet to be with you all here this morning. I miss my, my family at Edmonds. I really do miss them. Um, we have a church of about, it's about 130 to 140 people. About half of them are second grade and younger. So there's a lot of little kids. So, hey, if you little guys are in here, you can talk back to me. It's okay. I don't mind it at all. Besides, I have three kids, one a teenager. I get talked back to a lot. So the rest of you, if you want to just engage today, that's totally fine. My story is a, a, a I don't know, I was just, I was sitting in the back watching y'all come in. And this isn't in the notes, by the way. This is, this, is, this is a freebie. I was thinking about this, and my story is one where I came to faith after college. And my story is one where I hit rock bottom. And we're gonna look a little bit today of a story where somebody hit rock bottom, and that's gonna be a part of how we get to understand what it means to seek righteousness. But if there's any of you in this room today that are maybe high school, college, just out of college, starting a career, starting a family, and quite honestly, you don't really know where you stand in faith and maybe you're just trying to like, put on a good show or just hold it all together, can I just let you know that I've been there? And man, I'm really glad you're here and I wanna serve you well. And so 
if you want to hear a little bit more of my story, I'd be happy to share with it. I'll tell you what, I, there's a lot of stories I cannot share in this setting right here in front of you all in this way, okay? But I got a lot of stories. And um, man, it'd be really good to be able to talk to you, maybe even after service. With that, we're going to jump into our message today. We are going to be walking through another beatitude. So I'm, I'm honored that Pastor Ricky invited me in and just we're going to continue on in this series of uh, upside down happiness according to Jesus. And uh, we'll be reading from uh, Matthew 5 as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to ask you to do something that we do back home at Cross and Crown, which is if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. So stand on up. If you got a Bible, go to Matthew 5. And here's why. Here's why I'm asking you to do this. We believe that this is God's holy, inspired, perfect word. That is good for us. That is the way for us to be able to understand his character, who he is, how he wants us to thrive in life. And so it's the barometer of truth for us. Not our own experiences, not our own, uh, our own version of truth. This is truth right here. And so we're going to honor God and his word by standing when the word of God is publicly read. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is Jesus, by the way. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. And we just ask that, Holy Spirit, you would do the work that you do, which is to uh, renew our minds, that you would convict our hearts, that you would bring light to glorify Jesus. Pray that right now you'd be with Pastor Ricky as he's in Africa working with the foundation and that there would be a good work there and that there would be uh, just an amazing outflowing of the kingdom in that place. Help him get home safely. I pray that you'd be with us here this morning to bring glory to Jesus' name, conviction to our hearts, comfort in the midst of our sin and good news to those who desperately, desperately need to hear him. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for standing with me in that. So as we're continuing on in the sermon series on the Beatitudes, uh, we've walked through three of them. Well, you all have walked through. I'm just jumping in on this fourth one. So the first three that you've walked through then are really categorized by things that you're not supposed to do. And today we get to transition a little bit. Building off of those first three of the things you're not supposed to do, we actually get some positive instruction and direction of what are we supposed to do. So the passage we're looking at today is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As we take a look at this idea of what happiness is, you guys have talked about this recently, right? Like the idea that we're all pursuing happiness. It's, we're trying to figure out our best life now. We're trying to figure out what makes us happy. We're trying to figure out what gives us purpose. We're trying to fill our life with anything that can help us cope with the stresses, the anxieties, the depression, the, the rigors of this life, right? We're trying to figure out, we just wanna be happy. 
It's really interesting, though, because all of these three that we've walked up to this point, it's been something where Jesus has called his followers, and that's what we are, right, as disciples. We're devoted followers of Jesus. So as his followers, what he's called us to do is he's called us to lay down three things. The first is that we're to lay down that which is self-seeking when he says poor in spirit. We're not to seek after our own self-interest, but we're to lay it down. This is what the scriptures talk about being a death to self. We don't live our life now. We live the life that Christ lives in us. That's way better than our life. So we're called death to self. We're called to be poor in spirit. We're called to mourn, which is the laying down of our self-satisfaction. We're called to mourn away from our self-satisfaction. What is that? That's the, the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. It's the things of this world that would draw us away from God and into a far lesser sense of satisfaction. Well, we call that sin. We're called to lay down our sins. We're called to lay down ourselves. We're called to lay down our sin. By the way, how does God respond to those that lay down their sin? He comforts them. Oh, what a beautiful picture. He comforts them. And then last week you looked at this idea of laying down your own power. Because we talked about meekness, right? Meekness is power under control. Meekness is understanding that God is in control so we don't have to be. That's really good news. Because I've lived that life when I'm in control and I'm often tempted to go back and try and seize control. And when I do, guess what? It just doesn't go that well. So today, building off these three things we're supposed to walk away from. So from self, from sin, and from power or control kind of talk about those things, the same thing. We are now to put on the positive, which is to hunger and thirst after righteousness, after righteousness. Here's the message I want you to walk away with today, that happiness is found in the satisfying presence of God. There is no other satisfaction that can match that satisfaction than the happiness that is found in the presence of God. Okay, so we're gonna dive into this. Uh, today, I've got a few different things for us. I wanna be able to understand some phrases in this little small passage that we have. I wanna understand what righteousness is first. Then we'll talk about what it means to hunger and thirst and then what it means to be satisfied. And as we do that, we're gonna walk through a couple of different illustrations in scripture, stories that might be familiar to you, but there's something I wanna pull out of each one of those, highlight a little thing in those. But first, let's, let's talk about this idea of Righteousness. And there's a danger here when we talk about righteousness. And so I, I wanna be able to talk to you first. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're here, you're seeking, you're, you're trying to figure this out. Maybe your parents brought you here, friend, girlfriend, wife, I don't know, somebody brought you here. Maybe you're here on your own, that's great. But what I want you to understand first and foremost is the forgiveness that is offered. The forgiveness of your sins that is offered and the reconciled relationship to your heavenly father that is available to you through that forgiveness. When we talk about righteousness, what we have to understand is it is a reflection of God's character, but it's also a gift that we receive. You see, righteousness is not something that we do a bunch of rules. We're not obedient to all these things to try and prove to God that we're worthy of his love and his affection. Righteousness is something that's given to us. How and why? When we put our trust in Jesus, that his payment for our sin was good enough perfect. And in doing so, God then gives us the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't just deal with the negative. He also brings the positive. So we get to stand fully righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his perfection. So it means that we don't have to be perfect on our own. That is good news, my friends. And if you have not experienced that, 
If you've not experienced the forgiveness of your sins and the freedom from that weight of trying to hold it all together on your own, don't leave today without talking to somebody, please. See, righteousness is the condition of being acceptable to God as made possible by God. That's important. The condition of being acceptable to God as made possible by God. It is then understood to be the opposite of self-righteousness. It's not something you accrue on your own. So there's a couple of different terms here that I want to discover. One is justification. It means that you are right in the eyes of God. And it is the legal declaration that your sins have been forgiven. But it's more than just the forgiveness, right? And that's what I was just saying. It's the idea that both the negative has been dealt with, your sins have been forgiven, but also, and in addition to all the more, hallelujah, you get the righteousness of Jesus put on top of that. What does that mean then? It means when God looks at you, he doesn't see your faults, your failures, your sin, your condemnation, your shame. He sees the perfection of Jesus. Do we deserve that? You can talk back to me. Do we deserve that? No, no, we do not. What a gift. This is a gift that we've received from God. And how does that happen? It is simply when you put your faith and trust in Jesus saying, yep, your life, your death, your resurrection, that's enough for me and in my place. And that's what takes place. That is justified. If we merely had been forgiven, it would only solve part of the problem. But God has also supplied the positive by giving us the righteousness of Christ. So that's justification. I want you to understand that the first point of this is that as we talk about righteousness, there's actually, it's not really about justification in this sense. It's more about how do we grow more like Jesus. That's the term called sanctification. But I didn't want to go there first without understanding that Jesus paid it all for you first, okay? I don't want you to walk away with this today figuring out, I got to try and do more to earn God's love. He already loves you, okay? Okay, so now in the context of blessed are those, happy are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, what is this righteousness then? Well, this righteousness is this idea of becoming more like Jesus. Kind of a textbook definition for you then is that it's the progressive work of God and man doing this together that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. Okay, so there's two parts there. One is that there's a freedom from sin. And the second part is that you get a little bit more like Jesus. Well, I thought we already looked like Jesus. Well, yes, but let's talk about sin for a second. Sin is essentially when we miss the mark of perfection. If that's the case, do we sin often or rarely? What would you think? Often, right? If perfect's the goal, am I perfect all day, every day? Pfft, no. Right, we know that. So that means I'm missing the mark all the time. So I, sometimes it, we need to understand the weight of our sin, but we also just need to understand like the amount of sin that we have in our lives, right? Because when we can do that, we can understand it. It does two things. One, it produces a gratitude in us. But the two is it means it's a little easier to talk about because it's not this like thing that maybe we got to hide, right? It just simply means missing the mark. So if happiness then is to become more like Jesus. If happiness then is to walk away from our sin, we then have to understand what freedom looks like. See, freedom from your sin, freedom from your imperfections means a few different things. It means that we've got to, first of all, we've got to reject sin. Second of all, we need to embrace Jesus. And third is that we need to pursue holiness. Okay, 
And that's, that last one's really why I wanted you to understand what it means to be righteous in the eyes of God first, right? Because I don't want you to try and pursue holiness on your own. But this first one, this idea of rejecting sin. Now, if sin is just imperfection, it, it, we're called to then turn away from sins because if sin is directional, just think of it this way. You're running headlong to all these things, these things that would draw you, these things that would tempt you, these things that would uh, cause you to stumble, these things that you just, you know there's conviction, right? Like these are not things that you're supposed to partake in. And by the way, why do we sin? It feels good. Otherwise, you would never do it. Can we just understand that? Like you would not pursue those things if they weren't tempting to you at all. That's why some people are more tempted by some things than others. So the first is to repent of sin. Now, if sin is directional, the repenting of sin literally means to both turn and then to walk in the other direction. Now, functionally, what does that look like? It looks like the things that would tempt you, the things that would draw you, the things that would cause you to stumble, to turn the other way and walk. And if we're walking in a different direction, which direction are we walking towards? Walking towards Jesus, right? This is walking towards holiness. This is walking towards righteousness. This is walking a little bit more like Jesus. So that's the first part. So we've got to have a rejection of sin. That means turning. The second is that we've got to embrace Jesus. Because if we don't know which way we're walking after we've turned away, then we're still lost, aren't we? You've got to have a vision in front of you. You've got to have a destination. Where am I going? Where am I walking after? And as you're walking after Jesus, you're going to become a little bit more like him. That's the work of sanctification. That's the work of righteousness in your life. And then the last one then is the pursuit of holiness. What is the pursuit of holiness? Functionally, what it looks like is you're just a little farther away from those things and a little closer to Jesus day by day. Okay? It's not a rule of perfection. It's not all the things, if all the do's and don'ts if I'm going back through the Old Testament. Like I just don't want to relieve you of that burden. If you cast your eyes on him and you focus after him and you walk after him with reckless abandon, if you just run after Jesus, guess what? You're going to be living a life more holy because he's set apart. That's all that means. He's set apart. He's different than the rest of this world. So we're going to be moving away from self from sin and from power. I, I like this. One commentator said it this way. When we do this, when we experience the freedom of sin, what happens to us is that we are essentially walking through an emancipation from self-concern. We're no longer so worried about what people think about us. We're no longer so worried about how I can satisfy, satisfy myself, the ambitions I might have. We start to think of others. So to hunger and thirst after righteousness then is to desire to be free from self in all of its horrible manifestations and all of its forms. So here's what it means. The recognition of this reality, this reality of pursuing righteousness, this reality of what Jesus has already done for us, what it does in us, it generates in us a posture of gratitude. Doesn't it? If you've experienced forgiveness, aren't you thankful for that? Here's the thing. If God was gracious and drew you out of your sin when he saved you, you didn't, you didn't earn it on there, right? Like if your story is anything like mine, you weren't doing anything that puts you in the good column. You, there was nothing there that God would say, yeah, I think I can work with that. I'm gonna move him on over because of all the things that he's done. If I didn't do anything to add to my salvation in that moment, why am I trying to make it happen on my own now? We're gonna trust in Jesus and that's what it's gonna look like for us to grow in righteousness. So in other words, this trusting in Jesus, it produces a hunger and a thirst for God's presence, for his promises and his blessings. 
All right, let's talk about hunger and thirst then. Because hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's this longing to be holy, right? It's, it's these natural desires that we have. And I love how scripture talks about just these real life things that we experience. Like the scriptures do talk about what it looks like for us to be human beings, for us to have desires, for us to have cravings, for us to have needs, right? For us to have hunger and thirst. These are daily things that we are confronted with. We're gonna eat daily. We need to drink lots of water. In my case, a lot more than I do. We're gonna need to experience the human reality and in doing so, God's gonna draw out an understanding for us. I love in scripture, even when Jesus was on the cross, the humanity of Christ was on display with a two word statement. And what did he say as he was there on the cross? He said, I thirst, I thirst. He needed, he was in need, he was thirsty. Jesus, the God man was dying in that moment. This is interesting, though, because hunger and thirst are, are built-in ambitions that we have. Now, they're necessities, they're needs, but they're also kind of this idea of an ambition. And that's really what some have called this beatitude. It's a beatitude of holy ambition because we're called to strive after righteousness. We're called to do it with a, a magnitude of having hunger and having thirst and having the regularity of needing to satisfy those desires each and every day. There's an ambition that's built into this. What are some of the driving desires in your life? Is it the pursuit of a relationship? Is it the attempt to prove that you are lovable? It is to be accepted by someone, by a group of people. Is your driving ambition to be famous? Be wealthy, successful? What drives you? See, this, this beatitude is one that is built on a holy ambition, which is in contrast to the fleeting desires of this world, the desires of the self-seeking importance, arrogance, pride, self-preservation, and power. You see the contrast that's being built here? God doesn't want those things for you. But that's my question for you. What drives you? And at what cost are you willing to sacrifice to achieve that thing? It doesn't mean all ambition's bad, by the way, okay? I just I want to make sure that you hear that. The desire to be successful, that's not a bad ambition. What you do with that and how that treats your heart, that's going to be another conversation. Jesus said this in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? if it means he had to forfeit his soul? And that's the question in front of us. Are our desires drawing us to forfeiting our soul? Okay, I want to take a look at a couple of three different images or pictures or illustrations in scripture. Three different stories that are gonna be pretty familiar that help us understand what this looks like. What does it mean for us to have a hunger and thirst that can drive a holy ambition in us to become more like Jesus? The first story I want to look at is the story of the prodigal son. Now, uh, if you came in right when service started, I don't know if Pastor Chris had done this, if you looked at my notes or whatnot, but we sang the song, The Prodigal, which is just awesome. I'm, I'm gonna actually just chalk that up to God's providence that it was sung. But it's this beautiful story that is probably very familiar with it. Uh, if you are familiar with it, that's great, but I'm gonna highlight something out of that story for us. So the story is, as Jesus would tell, it's a story of uh, a wealthy man and he has two sons. He has a young son and he has an older son. And the young son comes to him and he says, Father, I want all of my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for you to die. I want it now. 
I want to be rich now, is what he says. And this is in Luke 15, by the way, if you need to find it, if you want to follow along. And what happens is that he comes up to him and the father says, okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you're desiring. So he gets his inheritance. So here he is, a young, rich man, willing to go whatever, do whatever he wants. Sounds dangerous to me. And in fact, it doesn't end well for him, at least at some point. So we're picking up in verse 13 of chapter 15 of Luke. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. He left home. Some of you might want to be, they want to leave home, right? Some of you are parents that really don't want your kids to leave home. So we went to a far country. And there, what does it say? He squandered his property in reckless living. I've been there. I, have, I can relate to this one. I mean, the idea of the prodigal is one where it's the story of a, a son in faith and he's drawn back to the father. But I can really relate to this idea of having immense blessing, having just immense opportunity, immense privilege, been given the world on a platter. And what did I do? I squandered it by living recklessly. I've been there. That was what I call rock bottom. And praise God, that's when he saved me. Do you know that God, he has such an amazing sense of humor. I was going to the University of Washington. I was living the college life. And then I graduated college and I just decided to extend that life. And I was living in the university district just right off of the campus. And it was in that season of life where God called me, called me to trust, called me to trust in Jesus. And my life had to change. There were some things that needed to really change, but there were some things that I did not anticipate changing. One of them is that God not only called me to follow him, but he also called me to be a pastor in that very same university district right next to the University of Washington. The irony of that, where I now get to be a pastor in watching those that are living a reckless life and squandering all their possessions right outside our front door. And I get to tell them a message. It's like, I've been there. I've known what you've known. I've seen what you've seen. I've experienced it. And there's something way better. So the story continues. And so after he had spent everything, then a severe famine came. So the situation got worse now at this point. Oh no. And so he actually ended up having to go feed the pigs and he was longing to just be able to eat what the pigs were eating. But the story doesn't end there because he realizes at that point, that was his rock bottom. That was his point when he said, I need to make a change. And so he starts thinking through, I think I need to go back to my father. Can you imagine the shame that would be built into that exchange for him to go back to his dad and say, I know you gave me everything, but I've spent it all. I need help. So how does the dad respond? Well, in verse 20, and he, the dad, or no, the son, he, he arose and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father, what? He saw him, he felt compassion for him, and he ran him, and he embraced him, and he kissed him, he welcomed him home. How beautiful is that picture, that picture of forgiveness where the father who had given everything to his son way before he deserved it, embraced him, he, he forgave him. He wasn't ashamed of his son. He said, come on in. And he gives him his best ring, and he gives him his best robe, and he throws a party. He says, my son was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. He's come home. What a beautiful picture. Some of you need to go home. 
Some of you are walking away from the Lord and you need to go home. Some of you are living a life where you're squandering it all and you need to go home. And I can say that because I'm a guest here and I don't know you. Here's the takeaway from that story. When that son was hungry, he was just hungry. He was willing to eat what the pigs were eating. But when he was starving, he went back to his father. Do you have an awareness of the deep need of your soul? Do you realize that without Christ, you're hopelessly lost? Is your soul starving? The scriptures speak of this, of the soul and what it needs from the Lord. It needs to be satisfied by the Lord. We read this in a couple of different places of the Psalms. King David speaks of this. He says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek after you. My soul thirsts for you. We're not talking about just being thirsty with a cup of water. We're talking about soul level thirst here. This is my flesh. It faints for you. I need to be sustained, not by the things of this earth. I need to be sustained by you and your presence. The soul finds its satisfaction in the Lord and it clings to the Lord. In Psalm 42, a familiar passage. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's kind of weird language, but really what he's saying is my soul thirsts for God. I need you. I cannot survive without your presence, God. And here's the amazing paradox in all of this. As the soul begins to be satisfied by the presence of the Lord, as you hunger and you thirst for him and you're satisfied, you think that you would be quenched. You'd have no other need for him thereafter. No, the paradox is that you then have a greater desire for him. When we talk about rejecting sin turning away from it, embracing Jesus and walking in holiness, what this means is if you begin to see, if you taste and see that the Lord is good, if you begin to experience a bit of that forgiveness, a bit of that freedom, a bit of that freedom from your sin and your shame, what happens is that your soul gets satisfied. And what do you want more of? You want more of Jesus in that moment. That's what righteousness looks like. That's what holiness looks like. It's not holding up all the rules and laws and all the regulations and ordinances. It's not doing all that stuff, right? It's not even living the perfect life. It's knowing that your soul needs more of Jesus. Would you give me more of yourself, Jesus? That's what it means to hunger and thirst. Let's talk about this word satisfied, right? Because this is really where, is it going to be enough? That's the question. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Really? Are we really gonna be satisfied? That's the question, right? That's if I'm pushing back against this, I'm really gonna ask, are you gonna be enough, Jesus? Two stories that we can look at in the scriptures, both in the gospel of John. The first is John 6. Again, a very familiar passage where Jesus goes and feeds a bunch of people, right? So he's sitting down on the mountain. There's thousands of people gathered to him. His disciples come and say, we've been sitting listening to you all day. They're hungry and we don't have anything to feed them. So Jesus does this awesome miracle and he feeds everybody. By the way, if you go back and read that, he tells the disciples to go and pick up all the scraps. And what do they fill? They fill 12 baskets to the brim, one for each disciple. It's just this little dig that Jesus has to him that just says, see, I will provide for you. You don't have to worry. I love that little, that little glimpse in that picture. But Jesus says, you know, I think you're coming after me because you got your fill of the bread. This is John 6. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had, oh, yeah, but when he given thanks to them, he distributed all those that were seated. He gave them around the fish and bread. And when they'd eaten all of their fill, 
He told the disciples, go gather up the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered up and there were 12 baskets and fragments from the five loaf barleys. So they came after him and Jesus was like, mm, I know what you're after. You're after more miracles. You're after more bread, aren't you? And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 26, you are seeking me not because of the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You don't actually want the kingdom at hand. You don't want the presence of Jesus here. You don't want freedom from your sin. You just want more bread. You just want to be satisfied right here and now. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What is Jesus offering? He's offering himself. Be filled with my presence. Be filled. Know that I am enough. And what does he do? He goes on and calls himself the bread of life. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, he says in that discourse. Don't seek after the bread. Don't seek after the miracles. Seek after the Savior and his presence. Another illustration then, just a couple pages before that. John 4, the woman at the well. Again, a familiar passage. Jesus is traveling and he stops through. He goes through Samaria, which he shouldn't have done. And he's at a well at the middle of the day, the peak of the heat. And there's this woman at the well and she shouldn't have been there because that's not when really dignified ladies in the town go to the well. So here she is with her checkered past. And Jesus approaches her and says, give me a drink. He shouldn't have been talking to this lady. It was really outside of custom for a Jew to be talking to a Samaritan woman. So the Samaritan said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? What does Jesus say to her? If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying this to you, <laughs> if, if you knew who I was, basically, if you knew who it was, if you knew who was saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on to say, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. If you drink of this water in this well, this is not eternal life. This will satisfy you in the moment. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. That's eternal. That is soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching presence of Jesus. Since the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know that phrase actually says, I will give him water and he will never be thirsty again. In the Greek, the construction actually is, he will be thirsty, never be thirsty forever. That just doesn't work in English, but I like it. He'll never be thirsty forever. That's what it means to be satisfied in the presence of God. This picture of the Lord satisfying us. We see this in Jeremiah. We see the, the, the way that God would turn to his people and say, I will turn mourning to joy. I will comfort them. Again, it's just like that beatitude. For those that would lay down their sin, they will mourn, but I will bring them comfort. I love how there's all these hyperlinks in the way that the scriptures speak to us and show us that God is the author of all of this. He goes, I will comfort them and I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with the goodness of the Lord taste and see that the Lord is good. And some of the last sentences in scripture, they have this beautiful picture where the Holy Spirit and the bride say, come. 
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. You see, this is freedom that is offered to you, that we might receive water and it is without price. It is freedom that is offered to you and I. And so this is the takeaway for us today. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they shall be satisfied in him. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Don't trust yourself. Don't hold on to your power. Don't go after your own ambitions. Don't celebrate your sin. Turn and walk away from those things. Embrace Jesus with a hunger and a thirst that is at the soul level. And what will you receive? You'll receive satisfaction, joy, happiness. A final illustration in scripture. In Jeremiah 17, there's this contrast that God is painting. There's a contrast of what it looks like to trust in yourself or to trust in the Lord. And then there's a contrast of what happens when you trust in yourself versus what happens when you trust in the Lord. And let me just read this for you. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength. It's not gonna go well for you if you trust in yourself above the Lord. And what happens? Your heart turns away from the Lord. Here's what it looks like when you do that. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. You're gonna walk into a desert if you trust in yourself and not the Lord. Would you be willing to trust in Jesus? Verse seven, blessed is the man then in contrast who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree that's planted by water that sends out its roots by its stream. And it doesn't fear when the heat comes. You know why? Because its leaves remain green and it is not anxious when there is a drought and it doesn't cease to bear fruit. When you satisfy the, for the, when you hunger and thirst and are satisfied by the lesser things of this world, you can be thrown by fear, by anxiety, by a drought, and you'll cease to bear fruit. When you're satisfied by hungering and thirsting for the presence, the promises, the blessings of the Lord, your circumstances won't cause you to cease to bear fruit. That's what it looks like to pursue holiness. That's what it looks like to grow in righteousness. That's what it looks like to find happiness in this life, pursuing Jesus with everything. When you trust in yourself rather than God, it leaves you in a desert of despair. When you trust in God rather than yourself, it produces a fruitfulness that is beyond your circumstances. So here's where I wanna end. These are some questions for you, some questions for self-assessment, if you will. These are diagnostic questions for you to understand what does it look like for me to begin to hunger and thirst and what am I holding on to? What do I need to let go of? I love that picture when Paul says this in Galatians 5. He says, you are freed from your sin, but who tricked you? Who tricked you to thinking that you have to do this on your own power? And I don't want you to walk away thinking I've got to hold it all together, okay? If I'm gonna try and pursue righteousness, does that mean I have to do it all on my own? No, quite the opposite. Lay all of that down. Lay your burdens down. Lay your sin down. Lay your shame down and accept more of Jesus. Run to him passionately. Persevere in that hunger and thirst for him. So here are these questions I have for you. Have you experienced freedom from sin? If you have not yet experienced that, please don't leave today without talking to somebody. There is a freedom that is offered to you 
through the finished work of Jesus. But along with that question, we can start to ask, like, what, it, what enslaves you? What hinders you? These things over here that would tempt you, that would draw you near, what are those things? We all have something. What is that for you? Next question. Are you filled or satisfied in God? Have you accepted the pleasure of lesser things as a substitute for the full and complete satisfaction that's offered in the Lord? Let me say it a different way. Are you the prodigal eating with the pigs? Is that good enough for you in this moment? I hope not. Have you experienced the soul-satisfying experience of forgiveness in God? Because that produces a gratitude in us and that's what makes us want to walk that way towards him. And are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Or have you just become apathetic? I hope that's not the case. I hope today you can see that there is so much more that is offered in that relationship with the Lord. And it is so much better than the things of this life. And I wanna pray for us to that end. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to draw us back to you. I thank you that for those of us that have wandered away, that have gone and lived our lives recklessly, that have squandered everything that you've given to us, that you are the Father on the horizon that embraces us, you kiss us, you robe us, you give us your ring, you throw a party for us. Thank you, God, that you invite us in. For any of those in this room today that are in that place, might they have hope to know that there is a Father waiting with outstretched arms to receive him. as we struggle with this idea of what it means to have a hunger and a thirst for those that are apathetic in their relationship with God, might you just take them back to this place of gratitude, that they would be able to see the beauty of the forgiveness of their sin and that would produce a gratitude in them. And my heart for each of us today is that we would just simply be at the spot, just saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you've lived in our place. Thank you that you died in our place. Thank you that we have your righteousness for those that have trusted you. Thank you that you don't leave us on your own, on our own. Thank you that you don't call us to perfection. You already did that. Thank you that we are reconciled to the Father. We're clothed in your righteousness. Thank you that you are so much better than the things of this world. May our hearts just cry. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.